James chapter 2, verse 12. Speak and act as those who will be judged by the law that gives freedom. Speak and act, two things that must go together. In the bustling days of Victoria, England, one man stood out not for political power, but for his profound influence on social legislation and a genuine commitment to Christian ideals. Anthony Ashley Cooper, later known as Lord Shaftesbury, earned a reputation as the Evangelical of Evangelicals. Hi, this is the Church History Podcast, and I'm your host, Loralee Siemens. And we're back after a very long Christmas break. Sorry it took so long to get back. I've been very excited to get a lot of new clients coming on board as we start out the new year. People who want to use the podcast platform as a way to share the message that they have. And I have to say, it is a great platform to use. If you're interested in starting a podcast and you're looking for editors, let me know because I would love to help with that. So in December, we were looking at the history of the carols, but before that, we were in the middle of a series on Christian Zionists of the 1800s. If you're new to this podcast, we are following the story of the church in chronological order, and we happen to be in the time period of the Christian Zionist movement, and we happen to be in this place right during a time when Christian Zionism is a topic many people are talking about. So you can go back and listen to the stories I've already told, and I'll put a link to those in the show notes. Before we jump into today's exciting story about a man I think we should all know more about, I want to remind you that while the time period we're talking about is known as the start of Christian Zionism, the idea that the Jewish people should have control over the land God promised to them was not a new idea. The call for the Jewish people to be given control over the land they had lived in for thousands of years was something that had been called for throughout the years of church history. Here's a few examples. In the late 16th century, a scholar named Francis Kent, he was a voice for the restoration of the Jews to the land of Israel. And he wrote a book in 1585 that was called The Glorious and Beautiful Garland of Man's Glorification Containing the Godly Mystery of Heavenly Jerusalem. And in that book, he talked about the notion of the Jewish people returning to Palestine. Now, Francis Kett's call for the return of Jews to the God-given land was met with swift and severe consequences. On January the 14th, 1589, he was burned at the stake. What was his crime? He expressed views that he found when reading the Bible. And the fact that Francis Kent would rather die, rather be burned at the stake, than deny that the Jewish people had a biblical right to the land shows just how passionate he was about this belief. Then in 1608, there was a man named Thomas Drakes, and he wrote The World's Resurrection on the General Calling of the Jews. 
And then there was Thomas Brightman and Joseph Mead. They both wrote books, and they wrote Revelation of the Revelation in 1609, where Brightman talked about Jews returning to their God-given land, and specifically to the return of Jerusalem. And Brightman wrote, What shall they return to Jerusalem again? There's nothing more certain. The prophets everywhere confirm it. There was even Napoleon Bonaparte. He was the French military and political leader, and he addressed the status of Jews in Europe. And he pushed for a Jewish restoration. Now, we did a whole episode on the life of Napoleon a very long time ago. You can go back and listen to that if you like. But in 1799, when he was in Egypt, he actually made a proclamation inviting Jews to return to their homeland and reestablish themselves as Palestine. Now, this was partly a political move because he was trying to weaken the Ottoman Empire, which at the time was controlling Palestine. But he also fought for the Jewish people who lived in France because they didn't have the same rights as the French people. In 1806, Napoleon convened what was known as the Assembly of Jewish Notables in France because he wanted to give the Jewish people the political and legal status in any of the territories he controlled. So we know this today when we study history as the infamous decree of 1808. And it did make life somewhat better for the Jewish people in France, but they still did not have the same rights as everyone else. There was some other people, Joseph Mead, who wrote The Key of Revelation in 1627, and Thomas Goodwin, who wrote that the Jews would one day return to Israel in his book, An Exposition on the Book of Revelation in 1639. There was Giles Fletcher, who was a fellow at King's College in Cambridge and also Queen Elizabeth's ambassador to Russia. And he wrote a book advocating for restoration. His book was called Israel Redu, or in English, The Restoration of Israel. There was also a man named Henry Finch, and he was actually a really distinguished member of parliament. And he was also a legal scholar. And he wrote a book called The World's Resurrection or The Calling of the Jews in 1621. Now, he had an unwavering belief in a literal interpretation of the Bible. The man on the throne at the time was the King James of England. This is the king responsible for the King James Bible. Now, King James did not like Finch's prophecy that there would come a day when Israel would be restored as a nation, and when that happened, all other nations would become subservient to Israel. He was so angry about this, he actually had Henry Finch, who, remember, was a distinguished member of parliament and a legal scholar, he had him thrown in prison as well as his publisher. And they became one of the many martyrs at the hand of King James. Even though the elites of society did everything they could to end anyone calling for the return of Jewish people, there have always been men of God who continue to write and speak on behalf of the Jews to have the right to the land of Israel, the land that God gave them. Now, as the 19th century unfolded, the doctrine of the restoration of the Jews found this renewed voice in what was known as the Christian Zionist movement. And that's where we find our story today. Born on April 28, 1881, Anthony was born into basically royalty. His father was Cropley Cooper, and he belonged to the esteemed Cooper family. 
He had ties to the Earl of Shaftesbury and his mother, Anne, was also in a long line of dukes. Now, if you were looking at this beautiful castle where this little boy lived and this family with the royal line, you might be jealous of this little boy who seemed to have the perfect life. But reality was a lot different. If you looked inside that castle, you would find the harsh reality behind the facade of aristocratic prestige. Anthony's parents were cold, they were abusive, and they believed in instilling fear rather than warmth into a child's heart. Anthony's parents held this belief that children should fear their parents and they should live in fear of their parents. And Anthony learned at a very young age to fear his parents who were cruel, mean, and cold. While living in this oppressive environment, Anthony did find love and compassion and faith through a woman named Maria Miles. She was a simple, compassionate, household servant who loved this little boy as if she were his own mother. She cared for him right from infancy and she introduced young Anthony to evangelicalism. She read the Bible to him and she taught him about the love of Jesus through her words and actions. And she taught him to love Jesus, we have to speak and act. Sadly, Maria's nurturing and loving influence was short-lived, and she passed away just after Anthony was set off to boarding school at the very young age of seven. Before she died, Maria gave Anthony a watch, and he cherished this watch. He wore it with him and kept it with him all the time, all the way until his death. It never left him. Later in life, Anthony would write that when he thought back about Maria, he thought of her as his best friend he ever had in his life. While home life had been difficult during those first seven years, it turned out boarding school was worse. He would later talk about his time in boarding school as a terrible part of his life. He described the school as bad, wicked, filthy. He said his treatment was basically starvation and cruelty. But those early years full of adversity, they shaped empathy for the poor and the mistreated that Anthony Ashley Cooper would later use to change his country. The year 1811 marked a very pivotal, important turn for the family. His father inherited the esteemed title of Earl of Shaftesbury, and that elevated the family status, and they became part of aristocratic circles. And just two years later, in 1813, young Anthony received the title of Baron Ashley after his grandfather passed away. He embraced his newfound social standing. He finished his time at the boarding school, and he began attending Harrow, and then later Christ Church College, and finally, Oxford. While he hated his schooling at the boarding school, he loved his time in those last three schools. And he found out he actually loved school and he loved learning. At the age of 25, Anthony Ashley Cooper married Lady Emily Cower. And the same year, he entered the political arena. And that year, during the elections, he won a seat in the House of Commons. And it was at this point in his life Everything changed for Anthony because he found a way 
he could impact the world. Anthony was appointed to the Select Committee on Pauper Lunatics in the County of Middlesex and on Lunatic Asylums. Now, as a young politician, he took this appointment seriously. The very first thing he wanted to do was visit the asylums to see what he was working with. Anthony visited the asylums and was shocked at what he saw. He saw the horrors of a world he had no idea even existed. As Anthony walked through the asylums, he witnessed the appalling conditions. People were not seen as patients, but as inmates, and they were treated worse than abused animals. He saw their so-called treatments, which involved bleeding people or using starvation and even plunging patients into ice water. Ashley was shocked. His very first speech at the House of Commons advocated for establishing a board of commissions to license and inspect asylums. Ashley undertook tireless inspections and he would go from asylum to asylum and he worked to end the misery and improve patient care and treatment standards. His unwavering dedication and advocacy for the people living in the asylums changed life in England. In his 30s, Anthony, who was now at this point in his life known as Lord Shaftesbury, either became a Christian or decided to take his faith seriously. Now, here's a place where historians have different views. Some historians say it was in his 30s he became a Christian, while other historians point to his early childhood with his nanny. Now, while that servant had a profound impact on his life and taught him about salvation, it's actually unclear if he chose to be a Christian at a young age or as an adult. But what we do know and what all historians agree is that there was a change in his life in his 30s and he began to take Bible study very seriously and he began to have a profound longing for the return of Jesus Christ. Now, this Bible study and this longing for Christ's return led him to become involved in the Zionist movement, and he became a pivotal part in the push for the rebirth of Israel. It was in 1838 that Lord Shaftesbury became basically the key figure of the Zionist movement. He had a sincere commitment to Christian Zionism, and this commitment came from his unwavering belief in biblical prophecy. He was convinced that the Jews would return to the homeland God had given them, and he was convinced in the second coming of Christ, and he believed that the Jews would return to their homeland before the second coming of Christ. He became one of the most prominent evangelical Christians of his time. Now, his vision went beyond simply just theological discourse and talking amongst Christians. As a member of parliament, he began using his voice in parliament to, to talk about his envision of the Jewish people returning to their homeland. He came up with an idea of having a British colony of Jews in Palestine. He saw this type of colony would offer Britain an invaluable resource like cotton, silk, herbs, olives, olive oil. And he began pushing for Britain 
to make Palestine into a British colony, but that the Jewish people would be in charge of and rule. Now, his proposal didn't happen during his lifetime, but would eventually happen at the end of World War I. And we talked about that in our episode of the Spafford family, who witnessed Britain taking power over Palestine. Lord Shaftesbury was arguing in Parliament regularly. He gave political reasons, financial reasons, economic reasons, but he was convinced that the Jewish people needed to be in charge and rule Palestine. All of his talking, all of his arguments eventually led for the British government to adopt a pro-restoration policy in the 1840s, and that became the official stance of the British Parliament. British Parliament at the time was the world leader, so when the British Parliament officially took the Zionist stance as their official stance, that made the movement progress even more. Now, while his plan for a Jewish colony in Palestine faced a lot of obstacles, but Shaftesbury's influence became kind of a cornerstone, and he kept this unwavering commitment to the idea that Jews would reclaim their homeland, and he kept that throughout his entire life. But Lord Shaftesbury wanted not only to see the Jewish people given back control of their homeland, he also wanted the Jewish people to come to see Jesus as their Messiah. The Jewish people who did accept Jesus Christ as their Messiah are known as Messianic Jews, and Shaftesbury pushed to have Messianic Jews hold important roles in the evangelical church. He saw that as significant and important. He was actively involved in the society known as the London Society for Promoting Christianity Among the Jews. And he was the one who pushed for an establishment of an Anglican diocese in Jerusalem and to make sure that the very first bishop would be a Messianic Jew. Everywhere he went, he always had a ring that he wore And on the ring it was engraved, Oh, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. In 1840, he coined the phrase, A country without a nation for a nation without a country. His work and ideas not only spread all across England, but even Europe, and especially in Scotland, where the Church of Scotland began a widespread support for Jewish restoration. While working hard in the Christian Zionist movement, Shaftesbury was also really concerned about the lower class in England. In 1839, the English mines were terrible. The mining industry was a critical backbone for the nation's progress, but it was full of safety hazards. Miners found themselves in a lot of accidents. There was cave-ins, there was harmful gas, and there was long hours of working. And all this time spent underground, here's the horrible part. Not only was there men and sometimes women working, there was small children as young as five or six. And these small children were used to navigate small cramped spaces that adults couldn't get into. They were used to open and close ventilation doors. They were used for hauling coal. And many of these children died from harmful gases or accidents, or explosions, or caves-ins. When Lord Shaftesbury saw what was happening in the mines, he recognized there was an urgency to reform the mining industry. In 1839, he became the torchbearer for change, 
and a voice, and he would speak out for the miners, and specifically for the children. In 1841, he successfully lobbied for the Mines Act. This landmark legislation paved a path towards improved conditions for the miners. There was still a long way to go, but this brought safety and some regulations into the mining industry. And also in 1833, he had the Factory Act, because this was also an industry that was using children as young as five or six. The Factory Act of 1833 declared that a child could only work 48 hours a week. Now, when we stop and think about this today, we would think a child working 48 hours a week, that's terrible. This was actually an improvement during this time period. But the act also said that the young children had to be given a chance to have an education. Once again, it was his faith that propelled him to champion any causes he saw for the oppressed, whether that was the patients in the asylums, whether it was the Factory Act or the Mines Act. Shaftesbury, whatever he did, he wanted to do what God wanted him to do. He wanted to be the voice of change. He worked to end child labor, and he called for societal changes in so many things. Then in 1858, he noticed that throughout London, there was orphaned children just roaming around. He became involved in what was called ragged schools, and these were classrooms where these young orphaned children who were living in the streets could come and get an education. The Ragged Schools Union was founded in 1858, and this was under Shaftesbury's leadership, and it was free education to these children, these vulnerable members of society. There weren't traditional schools. They didn't have polished desks. Uh, You didn't have to wear a uniform. These were children who could come off the streets if they were homeless and orphaned, and they could have an education. He saw the ragged schools as a place of empowerment where these impoverished children could, one, find a place where they would be taken care of and loved and helped, but also given an education so they would have a chance to move up in society. In 1844, Lord Shaftesbury was appointed President of the Board of Trade in Sir Robert Peel's government. While his work in the asylums, his work in the mines, the factories, the ragged schools, helped shape England, it was his push for the restoration of the Jews to the Holy Land that helped him become the president of the London Jew Society, and that happened in 1848, and he stayed the president of that society until he died in 1885. When I hear this story, I'm reminded that it was actually one woman, not an important woman, a servant, who spent just seven years loving a baby, a toddler, a little boy, a young child. That woman shaped the life of a man who impacted England and became one of the greatest advocates for the Jewish people and the rebirth of the nation of Israel. Among the Christian Zionists, this is a name we all should know. Next week, we're going to finish our series on the Christian Zionists of the 1800s with one more episode where we're going to look at three other men who were impactful, and then I'm going to do a Q&A and kind of answer some of the questions that I've been given while I'm doing this study. So tune in next week. You won't want to miss that.